Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. So what's the first brand? We talked about how brands were so important to you as a child. This is a tough question for you, I'm sure. What's the first brand that made an impact on you? Adidas. As a soccer player, it was definitely Adidas. Um, I remember getting my first pair of Sambas. My dad took, there was one soccer store in Michigan, and it was like two hours away from where we lived. And he drove me all the way over there, and I got my first pair of Sambas, and I was so happy. And um, that was, you know, that was the first brand that made a big impact on me. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today on the CMO podcast is Andrea Brimmer, the Chief Marketing and Public Relations Officer of the digital financial institution, Ally Bank. In one of the most ambitious rebranding efforts in history, GMAC in 2010 rebranded itself as Ally Bank, and the firm went public in 2014. Ally is now a top 20 bank with total assets nearing 200 billion. And Andrea has been the CMO at Ally since the financial crisis in 2008 and just before the rebranding. And she is now navigating her team through an even larger crisis. Teamwork and purpose are her mantras, and she is one remarkable human being. Andrea is a former collegiate athlete playing soccer for Michigan State, never missed a minute of any match, and she's one of that age's women to watch. This is my conversation with Andrea Brimmer. Andrea, welcome to the CMO podcast. I'm so looking forward to this, and I have this question right up front. Before COVID, were you still playing, competing, or coaching in soccer? (laughs) Well, Jim, thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm excited. And no, I am not playing, coaching, or competing in soccer. Um, And the reason is I'm too competitive. So when I graduated from college, I played for a long time. And I would, you know, I couldn't help myself. I was aggressive when I played. I'm, I'm slow. My kids call me square wheel. So if somebody got by me, I had to slide tackle them to stop them or, you know, bang into them pretty good. So I was going to work with black eyes and strawberries on my legs and cut open knees. And I thought, all right, it's time to be a professional. I don't think I can do that anymore. So now I just sponsor it. I don't play it anymore. Well, you're very humble. You played at Michigan State. What what position were you? I was a center midfielder. So I played uh, played halfback and I played my whole life. I played since um, since I was a little kid. And the experience at Michigan State was awesome because I was on the first varsity women's team ever. And so um, it was a really cool piece of being part of the history of bringing that team to life um, in the Big Ten. And we were really only the third Big Ten team um, and really worked hard to get women's soccer to become a varsity sport across the Big Ten. Now, I'm a Nittany Lion, so I have to ask you, did you ever beat Penn State? <laughs> well, you know what? We are pretty good, Jim. So we did beat Penn State. Beautiful. So what are you doing now during the pandemic to keep yourself fit, mentally, physically alert? All of our kind of uh, rituals have been a bit disrupted, right? I'm still groping 
trying to figure out mine as well, actually. But what are you doing now to stay alert physically and mentally? Yeah, I am a huge believer in strong body equals strong mind. And I preach that all the time with my team. Um, and I try and practice it myself. So I'm doing a number of things. Um, I'm, I go to boot camp have a local boot camp here that I attend quite a bit. Uh, they've been doing it outside, which has been nice, at least in the summer in Michigan. I don't know what's going to happen once we get to winter because the gyms are still closed here. So I've been doing that. Um, I still love to run, you know, especially as a midfielder in soccer, running was such a big part of the game. And so I still try and get out and get a jog. And then one of the one of the folks on my team is actually a trainer, um, on the side. And so he and I have been doing Zoom calls. In fact, I've got one later today, twice a week, just trying to get a good training in. So I'm trying to do that. Um, and then I, I really, Jim, I, I've gotten to a point where I've just tried to put the news away. I think it was mentally wearing on me big time. I couldn't look at, you know, the news every single day, listen to CNN every night. It was just starting to get to be too much. And um, I kind of suppressed the COVID command center and I'm trying to stay positive by just focusing on some of the bright, the bright things in life right now and staying a little bit away from that right now. Well, you told me before the podcast that you're in a small home with four children, two dogs and your husband. And you're right now we're podcasting from a spare bedroom that for the moment is quiet. So so tell us how that's going. What what kinds of things are you doing to stay together and stay stay up and happy and healthy? Well, you know, I mean, as luck would have it, my husband and I are in the process of building a brand new house and we're really into mid-century architecture. So we're building a very authentic mid-century home. We we talked an architect um, into coming out of retirement to draw up the plans that was really well known for mid-century and, and we're building on a lake and I couldn't get quarantined there, right? I had to get quarantined here. Um, but, you know, it, it's been it's been choppy. I mean, I feel bad for our kids. They've had a lot of disappointment. Our youngest is in at school. He was supposed to be going to Greece for the summer for an internship. Our daughter was supposed to spend the summer in New York, um, actually with our ad agency Anomaly for an internship. It's been a dream of hers her whole life. Um, our youngest, uh, you know, graduated high school and didn't get to have his ceremony and our oldest graduated college didn't get to have his ceremony. So, you know, it's been, there's been a lot of personal disappointment for the kids, but, you know, we're all doing well. We're, we go over to the new house a lot. We sit there and pretend we live there. We're fortunate because we've got a boat and some jet skis. So we go play with the toys a lot and, and just try and uh, get outside and get as much fresh air as possible. And everybody, I'm, I'm happy to report everybody's getting along pretty well. No major blowouts at the Brimmer house yet. We have a connection with our love of sports and old homes uh, we have another connection. You, you have a connection to Cincinnati. We still live there. I, I spent many years there at Procter & Gamble. And tell us about that connection. Here's what I want you to tell us, because your uncle is a very famous restaurant owner. I know him. He played a big role in our life. What? Tell us a little bit about that story and what you learned from your uncle about marketing and branding. Well, you know, it's interesting, Jim. My, I'm 100% Greek. And um, everybody in our family, with the exception of my dad, who was a judge, is in the restaurant business. Um, my grandfathers both had Coney Islands in Detroit. 
Um, they came right from the old country here, as they would say, and opened Coney Islands. My other uncle here in Michigan has a very famous restaurant called Genopolis's that anybody in the Detroit area would know well. And my uncle Ted started the Montgomery Inn in Cincinnati, which is really you know, world famous. They ship their ribs everywhere. They ship the sauce everywhere. They've had every celebrity in the world there. And it's such an interesting story because my uncle Ted and Aunt Matula, um, who are both past now and the, and the kids run the restaurant, you know, it was her, her recipe for sauce. And um, they started with just a small place in Montgomery, as you know, and they've grown it into an incredible business. And I think what I learned from them, as well as the rest of my family, including my parents, is uh, in terms of marketing and branding, is just um, how you can lean into what you're best at. Just pick that one thing. It doesn't need to be a lot of things. Lean into the one thing that you want to be known for and what you're best at and make yourself a famous brand by doing that. And we've really applied that at Ally. And I really learned that from them. And theirs was family and they knew they had this amazing sauce and they were incredible entertainers and they just attracted this wide swath of people that really helped put their restaurant on the map. So as a youth, all the cousins and I, we'd, you know, our parents would take us down there. We'd always go visit Uncle Ted and Aunt Matula. We'd go to Kings Island. Um, he was our wealthiest relative at the time. So he'd give each kid a hundred dollars, which back then was a lot of money. Oh, and we'd yeah. all go to Kings Island and, you know, blow all our spending money and live up, live it up like kings and queens. And it was just wonderful childhood memories that I'll never forget. Well, when we had our first baby, the first place we went when my wife came home from the hospital, we had lots of family around was to the Montgomery Inn. That's awesome. And had takeout and celebrate the baby with ribs. I had many ad agencies over to my home when I was a PNG, and we would get Montgomery Inn takeout. So it has lots and lots of really, really rich memories for me. So thank you to your family. I would kill for some Saratoga chips right about now, Jim. Oh, <laughs> now, listen, I want to um, stay in the pandemic just for one more moment. And, and I want to talk about your bank and you and the pandemic. You know, you as a totally digital bank, we're very well prepared for this. And you gained a bunch of new retail deposit customers through this. So that part of your business is really growing. And I've read that you're focusing your team on four things. And I'm going to read them for our listeners. Brand acts or actions are as important as traditional marketing. Be closer than ever to your customers. Hold your nerve. Be courageous. And be human. And then on the other hand, your business has some challenges with auto financing and truck financing. You're working your way through that. But of all those principles that you're reinforcing, what is the most important one right now? I would say without a doubt, big brand acts. And I think oftentimes uh, people think that brand acts equate to marketing and they don't always just equate to marketing. They equate to how your company and how your brand behaves in important moments. Um, another famous or another favorite saying of mine is this idea of deeds, not words. And what I think was incredible was the way that we as a company behaved very, very quickly by offering the most sweeping and comprehensive forbearance package in the industry. So within a week of the pandemic hitting, you know, we gathered with the business partners and we immediately went to four months, no auto payments, four months, no mortgage payments. We waived all fees at Ally Bank. So whether you needed a debit card overnighted or new checks, 
We waived all of those fees. And then we did some pretty remarkable things, I think, uh, when the stimulus packages came out. Um, not only did we move quickly to uh, make sure that all of our dealers got any of the SBA loans that were needed to keep their businesses going, and we funded all of those loans over a weekend. People were literally working 24 7. But we looked at all of our customers that were getting stimulus checks, and if any of our customers had a negative balance with us, we made them whole as a gift from allies to ensure that they would get the entirety of their stimulus check. That's just what we did for the customers. And then for our employees, we really took care of everybody. We moved everybody, work from home very, very quickly, which kept our COVID numbers extremely low at Ally, which has been incredible. We expanded so many of our benefits packages, you know, including paying for all COVID testing, additional funding for healthcare. We added a lot of mental health benefits because as we talked about earlier, I mean, this has been heavy. It's been hard for people. We established an employee fund where we're funding it um, with a portion of seed money from Ally, but other employees are donating, including our entire executive council to make sure that any of our teammates that need additional money right now have some money in their pockets and just trying to do the right thing. You know, as JB, who's our CEO, keeps saying, there's no playbook. And so you know, we don't have something to go to. And this is where if you have strong brand values and if you have an ethos like we do around this notion of do it right, you just try to make the decisions that are the right things to do. And so I think those big brand acts are really what have engendered the success for us over the past couple of months in terms of new deposit acquisition, because customers are seeing and feeling that. You spoke just so beautifully about how quickly you did generous things for your customers and your employees. Tell us what you've learned as a leadership team and for you individually, Andrea, as a leader through these times. Are you working even more collaboratively, more quickly, more creatively? So tell us a little bit about how you did all of the things you just talked about. Yeah, you know, I would tell you that if you were to talk to the entire leadership team, we probably would say we've never been closer than we are right now. Uh, when the pandemic began, we were meeting every single day, end of day as a leadership team and you know, working through all of the things that were coming at us, whether it was uh, how we were gonna treat the employees, what we were gonna do for customers, as you can imagine, the incredible amount of earned media that was getting um, you know, thrown at us. I, I also run PR, and so just the sheer volume of how to respond to the media. Um, and then all the marketing pivots that we had to make, the business pivots, um, it's incredible. You think about the fact that we're a bank, we have massive call centers, they're ally badged employees. We don't farm that out. And so how do you move call center people to work from home with customer data and all of those things? So that was really foundational to the leadership team coming together every single night and making decisions quickly instead of going through lengthy governance, governance processes and um, meeting after meeting, we were making decisions very quickly because we felt like real time mattered. So the forbearance, for instance, you know, we did within four days of the pandemic hitting. I think if you weren't in a pandemic situation and you were trying to get some kind of a customer forbearance approved, it probably would have been a two or three week process. 
Um, and then on the fun side, you know, there's just a lot of text chains going back and forth. We're having fun with each other, sending memes. We are doing a lot of virtual happy hours. Um, you know, you get the inevitable Zoom freeze and there's a famous one of me like gulping down a glass of wine. And that was right when the Zoom freeze and everybody screenshotted it. So now like every meeting, everybody is dogging me and sending that shot, <laughs> you know, so we're trying to do a lot of those kinds of things. And I just think that um, I think we're having a really good time as a leadership team and we feel proud of what we've done. And that is, you know, the spirit, which is, I think, carrying a lot of us through this right now. I mean, it's early to talk about this, but as we come out of this someday, who knows when, what do you think are the rituals, habits, practices that you'll carry forward as a team and as a leader yourself? And it's interesting, Jim, right before the pandemic, we actually had a leadership offsite and we had an author come in that talked about essentialism and he wrote a book around about essentialism. And I think that's the one thing that we've all really embraced during this pandemic. What are the things that we really need to do? And what are the things that we're doing that are extraneous that aren't necessary right now? And I think that's a habit that is going that have that we've really embraced during this time. And I think we're going to carry that forward. It's the spirit of um, don't make the simple complex. And I've noticed we're doing a much better job of that. I'm doing a much better job of it with my leaders. Um, and I also think that we're trying to, I think people are going to be surprised at how many folks have realized that you can be highly functioning from home. And that, you know, while I know we all miss the interaction of being in the office and this, I certainly miss getting on an airplane and traveling and seeing people face to face, there's a heck of a lot you can do from home in the spirit of just trying to get a better balance in your life. I think that's going to be another thing that's definitely going to persist post-pandemic. We just had a reunion last week uh, on Zoom with Gary Vaynerchuk and myself and Gary's, uh, one of the Gary's companies produces the podcast. We got the CMOs who have been on to come together and we had a really great turnout. You'll have to do it with us next time. But one theme from the CMOs was their life they feel is happier, more productive, more balanced, more focused. Uh, and they're going to carry that forward coming out of this for a whole variety of reasons. They just felt they were closer to their teams. They're doing the essential things well. They're making time for their families themselves, and they're still getting their jobs done. So this will be really interesting what comes out of this in terms of how we lead. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I, I think we're all learning new things. I mean, I don't think I've cooked as many meals in, <laughs> in my whole life that I have, you know, since March. And even those kinds of things have been fun. And and just a lot of the simple things. I mean, I, I travel, I'm sure like a lot of other CMOs extensively. Half my team's in Charlotte. I'm in Detroit. Half my team's here. I have, you know, agencies in New York, a lot of speaking engagements. Um, last year, I did 170 trips. And um, I'm not home during the week. And just the reconnection with the family, you know, my oldest son moved to Dallas. Uh, he started his job. I was able to move, you know, help move him down, get him in his place. My youngest is in North Carolina right now doing a vet internship, you know, was able to drive down to North Carolina with him. I haven't driven someplace 
for a, you know, for a vacation or otherwise like that since I was six, you know? So the simple things of driving through the, the mountains of Virginia and West Virginia and taking in that beauty, it was just really, really nice to be honest with you. And I'm, I'm hoping we don't return to our, um, our insane pace when this thing is over. I don't think we will. Now, listen, I want to flash back, go back in time a bit now to your, to your early days at Ally. You came to Ally in 2008, and it really was your first big job shift after college. You spent 19 years in advertising after Michigan State. And you not only jumped to the client side, but you jumped as CMO. So you jumped at a very senior level. That's not easy. And you did it before one of the largest rebrands in the history of rebranding. So, so wow. So I just want you to reflect on that a bit for our listeners. Did you feel prepared coming from Campbell Ewald into the client side? You know, was it a tough transition? Were you a better leader because of your 19 years on the client side? Just reflect on that, what you learned as you look back on that 12 years later. Yeah, no pressure, <laughs> right? Um, I mean, it was... And it was as tumultuous as a, of a time as it could possibly be, because if you think about that period of time, we were in the throes of the financial crisis. Um, unfortunately, we're in the throes of another one, but you know that was probably the largest financial crisis since the Great Depression. And here we were, just spun off from GM, all of a sudden, an independent company, the cre- all the credit markets were frozen. And we had to create this new brand and we had to do it quickly. We were ourselves. I mean, I'll never forget it, Jim. We, I started um, and, and two months later was the Christmas holiday and um, we went home for Christmas break and we had applied for TARP funding. And we got a note from our CEO at the time that said, if we don't get TARP, we won't be back. And so after the first of the year, we'll either be back and it's full steam ahead and try and rebrand this company or, and go, or it's come back, pack your boxes, and and we shut we shutter. And Christmas Eve, we got a call to be on a leadership call, six o'clock at night. I'll never forget it. I had all my groceries in my car. I was going to cook dinner the next day, and I was in the parking lot at Kroger, and we all got on the call and we said we got our tarp funding, so let's let's roll, let's get this thing let's get this thing moving. And so it was an incredible time. It was incredible pressure, but it was incredibly invigorating as well because the opportunity to rebrand a company that had been around for 90 years was um, an awesome opportunity. I felt I felt fairly well prepared coming from the agency side, but I, I had to find my own self-reliance. You know, when you're in an agency you're surrounded by a lot of different types of support people, whether it's creative people or strategy people, and you're executing on the client's plans. And I'm sure you felt this as a CMO as well. It's a different, it's a different set of pressure when you're responsible for marrying the success of the business acquisition with the outward facing way that you're going to speak to a consumer. And I had never really felt like I had married those those things together or had that pressure. So doing that, I'd never done a major rebrand. So I learned so much about rebranding from copywriting to 
getting websites cleared um, so that they could be, you know, they did they weren't firewalled within companies um, to finding an agency. We didn't even have an agency and we had to go out and do massive agency search. So it was an incredibly invigorating time for me. I learned so much in such a short time. And, you know, coming from Chevy where we build over a billion dollars a year, and then at the time coming to Ally and our first year, I think we spent a hundred million dollars. And I'm more proud of the work that we did with a hundred million dollar budget than anything that I did with a billion dollar budget. And I think that kind of speaks volumes to just that scrappy mentality we had at the time. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMO succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Now, you have done one of the biggest rebrands in history, so I want you to, you talked about it a little bit, but I want you to go deeper on that. What did, what did you learn in rebranding from, you know, a, a GMAC, which came out of GM, to Ally Bank, and then to a public company? And, and quite successful. I remember that rebranding. And because I remember it, it, it got my attention. I said, something different is going on with this bank. And I'm a, I'm a purpose person. I said, there's a lot of purpose coming through in what they're doing here. So I remember it very vividly when you first started. So tell us what you learned. If you were to write the book about rebranding, what would some of the chapter titles be? Well, I think the first chapter would be think like a customer and don't think like a marketer. And that, I think, has been such a key to our success. We, I mean, this is one of those you'll always remember business moments, right? When we were trying to really determine what our value proposition was going to be, we got about 10 of us together around a table from the company. No focus groups, no research. And we sat in a room and we put a grid up on the wall. And the grid was four quadrants, high value, low value, easy to execute, hard to execute. And we said, all right, just go. Everything you hate about banking today. And we identified pain points. I hate spending $5 to take money out of an ATM. You know, why should I have to do that? It ticks me off. It's my money. Why do I have to pay to get it out of a hole in the wall? I hate the fact that there's no 24 by 7 service. I hate that banks try and confuse you with jargon. Um, I hate that there's not transparency in the category. I hate the fact that, you know, I call the bank and the, the experience is an offshore call center and I can't have a, a strong interaction and in-language experience. And we just rattled, rattled them all off and we plotted them out and then we put a circle around highest value and easiest to execute quickly. And we took a big bet and we said, okay, you know, it, it seems crazy now, but we launched the same year that the smartphone launched. And we didn't have the time to build branches. We didn't have the money to buy branches. And so we had to be digital. And so what was formative for me relative to the rebrand is one, I've got to convince people to do something they've never done before, which is basically send their money to the internet <laughs> and bank that way. And two, I need to, I need to stir dis dissatisfaction with the category. 
people have been apathetic for too long about their money. And they have just accepted that banks treated them in a lousy way. And so I got to make people care. I have to stir emotion. And I have this great value proposition because we solve for those consumer pain points. And so we knew we had to break through. And so everything from the, the font that we used with the Ally brand name, that A, which we call our truth mark, which we always intended someday to be our standalone that we could use, like the you know, McDonald's arches or the Nike swoosh, um, the color. We put every bank's advertising up on the wall and every bank was either red, white, or blue or some combination thereof. And so we went with plum. We created our own plum and we thought that would really break through. Um, to the campaign, you know, using this idea of kids. So you probably remember the kids campaign and they were the arbiters of the truth and using them to point out, like if kids get it, why don't we as adults? So I learned so many things about how to punch above your weight and how to, like I said at the onset, lean into that one thing that you could be really great at. And I, I think that has persisted, to be honest with you, all the way to today. I don't think we've changed that formula one bit. We've evolved it, but we're still using that secret sauce. Habit change is so hard to change a habit of a customer consumer. And so many of the people I talk to are, when they have a new idea and uh, you know, to get people to change what they've been doing is maybe one of the hardest things in marketing. What did you learn about that? I mean, you stirred dissatisfaction, you talked about that, but how did you make, how did you build the trust and get people to change their habits and come to you and bank in a different way? We, we knew that it was going to be very difficult. And so the human centric aspect of how we would service people for us was the way that we knew we could build that trust. And so the 24 by seven service, um, we flipped our model relative to the way that we compensated our call center advocates. So instead of call centers, um, being uh, responsible for how many calls they could take and how quickly they could get customers off the phone, which is how most call center advocates are rewarded. We flipped that model and said, okay, you're going to get rewarded for first touch problem resolution. So even if you have to be on the phone with a customer for three hours, that's fine. You're not going to get penalized for that. You're going to actually get rewarded for that. If you don't have to transfer that customer to somebody else, and you can solve the problem for them. And so you're going to get compensated. And that was that was transformative um, because people could call. They could have dialogue with our call center folks. Um, they got their problems resolved and it built that trust. And then we really built out a tool set to make banking really easy. And, you know, whether it was our mobile app, whether it's our savings toolkit that we have today, um, and then using, you know, marketing to explain to people in real terms, no confusing jargon. Um, we did something really cool called the DeJargonator so that when you're on our site, if you roll over a term that you don't understand, like APY, it will, it will decode that for you um, in real English and plain terms. And so all of those things, I think, were the things that built that trust. The other thing that we did that I think was pretty important, Jim, is that at all levels of the organization, we wrote a lot of handwritten thank you notes, and we still do that today. 
So whether it was Di Murray, who's the president of our bank, writing handwritten thank you notes to people or myself or, you know, somebody on the call center team, we just do that as a regular practice so that people know there's a human being behind this digital entity and that we are thankful for your business and we care about you and we just want you to know that. You should teach someday. <laughs> I'd love to. You're very inspiring and you're very clear on your on your on your learning. So I'm enjoying this interview immensely. I just want to say in the middle of the interview. Thank you. Hey, I want you to talk about brand purpose, right? You you re you rebranded the company and did all these amazing things you talked about the high value, easy to execute, et cetera, et cetera, the quadrant, the team. But you started with a really, really strong purpose that focused on the dissatisfaction people were having in banking. So we talk a lot about brand purpose in this podcast. I'd like you to talk a bit about Ally, what the role of brand purpose was, is, what your challenges are, how do you measure it? How do you keep it going and evolving and keep everyone engaged throughout your whatever 9,000 employees? So tell us about how you see brand purpose and how you activate it, sustain it, measure it. Well, you know, I think I'm, I'm fortunate as a CMO because I happen to work at a company that everybody is not only aligned around the brand purpose, but believes in it strongly from our CEO to the business leaders. And you could walk across the company and talk to anybody and everybody can recite it. And it's this notion of being a relentless ally for our customers' financial well-being. And every word of that brand purpose was very carefully chosen. Relentless really connotes this idea of the fact that the customer's at the center of everything, and that it is our duty to ensure that we go the extra mile all the time to ensure that we deliver on, on being their ally. Um, the name ally was purposefully chosen and included in that because we wanted something that not only meant uh, that drove action, but it meant something and having an ally in your corner. That's a big promise that you need to, you can't have a name like that and not do it. <laughs> and so that was another big piece of it. And then the financial well-being piece was really important. And JB says all the time, we have to remember what we do is important. You think about money you know, probably the three most important things in your life are your health, your family, and your money. And not in terms of what your money can buy for you, but what it can empower you to do. You're renovating a home. I'm building a new home. I'm building a new home because I want a place that my whole family can come to. It's not because I want this home as much as I want a gathering place for my family. And that's what my money can allow me to do. And we are responsible for that at Ally. And so it's important. And so brand purpose literally drives every decision that we make. I can tell you that we sit in rooms and we probably, first of all, we start every meeting by reading a customer letter. So we remind ourselves who we're working for. Second, we probably spend more time arguing over about what the right thing to do is for the customer in meetings in one meeting than most companies do an entire year down to the smallest, smallest things. And I'll, I'll give you an example. We did a promotion last year that was a 1% cash bonus promotion, and it was meant to be a prospecting play, conquesting play. And um, our president of the bank, Di, said, well, we got to offer it to our customers. It's not fair to penalize our customers who have been loyal to us by not giving them this extra 1%. And it financially cost us a lot more to do that. 
as you can imagine. But again, it was the right thing to do. And so that's what we did. That is ingrained in literally every single conversation. And I think the way that from a marketing perspective that we've leaned into that is by doing programs and and activations that not only convey that, but do right in the world. And then using the tagline, do it right. I purposely picked that because not only is one of our brand tenants, but again, it holds you to something. If you say we're going to do it right, it is something that is a rallying cry for the organization. And you can't do the wrong thing when your tagline is do it right. Um, we're doing a PGA tour right now, a champions tour up here in, in Grand Blanc, Michigan. It's We're kicking off the PGA champions tour. And somebody asked us yesterday, um, did you go back to the PGA and try and renegotiate since you can't have fans and get a, a cheaper cost? And I said, no, because that's not the right thing to do to them this year. Um, and, you know, they're good partners of ours. They're going the extra mile. We're not going to try and, and, and get them right now and in a moment when they're hurting. And it, it will work out in the long run. And that's what that's the ethos of our company. Some people might say, you know, you're dumb. You should have gone after the expense. But when you have an ethos like that, it, it literally drives every decision. Who do you look to for inspiration, you and your leadership team, benchmarking? You know, when you look at, you know, you're, you're doing amazing work as a customer-centric organization. But when you think about brands you admire, brands that lift you up, that inspire you, do you have those kind of discussions on your leadership team? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I love advertising and marketing. I'm a, I'm a fan. Uh, you know, I get mad when my husband tries to skip the commercials. I'm like, no, I'll leave it. <laughs> you know? um, and I think there are a lot of great brands out there that are doing really strong work. I mean, I, I love the clarity of Apple. I think that I love the consistency and how they've never wavered off of what they're doing. Um, I think Mark's doing a ton of great stuff right now at P&G that's very purpose-driven that I that I absolutely love. Um, I love brands that take a stance on things. And so, um, you know, I, I look for brands that have bravery. I think one of the things that you'll hear me talk a lot about is this notion of bravery. And you you referenced it earlier with Hold Your Nerve. We do a lot of things that, especially for this category, are pretty out there. And um, I love to see other brands that are brave that way. Um, and, you know, I, I think that um, I think that there are so many brands that have stepped up right now during this pandemic that I'm really proud of. I also love brands that push outside of their category, like what Wendy's has done in social, I think is amazing. And you know, we have that challenge. How do you get somebody to follow a hamburger chain <laughs> in social media? You do it with this amazing snarky voice. And, you know, I'm a big fan of that. I think uh, I think what Burger King has done is incredible. And the work there is absolutely incredible. So I tend to gravitate towards brands that are breakthrough and brave and disruptive. And I, I think that's what we really try and do as well. Let's get back to a uh, final word about brand purpose. You're doing a beautiful job with it. What is your challenge in brand purpose right now? What do you wish you could do better? Um, I think our biggest challenge, honestly, is, uh, uh, and I think we've all talked about this a lot, is how do we do a better job of reaching underserved communities? I think there are natural biases in banking 
um, in so many, you know, historically, whether it's been redlining or other practices that bias against underserved communities. And so I think collectively, we're all very focused, and especially now in, in a period of time where there's so much social unrest on what is our role and what can we do to change the trajectory of, of the lives of people of color? And what can we do to help lift up the industry and um, make it do better, make it do the right thing? And that's a challenge, you know, that we have as well in terms of what products we have that meet the service needs of underserved communities. Um, the unbanked is a is a term you probably have mm -hmm. heard a lot. How do we make sure that we're solving for those gaps? That is certainly a challenge in our purpose. It's the good thing is it's part of our DNA. The the difficult thing is how do you create the right products that will be meaningful so that again it's it's deeds not words. Andrea, you've won just about every award in our industry. You're an ad age woman to watch. You've been the Financial Communication Society Marketer of the Year, five-time Best Online Bank Award, American Ad Federation Hall of Achievement, and on and on. Did you, as a young student at Michigan State, have any idea your career would take a path like this? No. My kids ask me that all the time. It's funny. Two years ago, I won the Distinguished Alumni Award at Michigan State, and my dad said, do they know your maiden name? Did they check the records? <laughs> I'm like, thanks, Dad. <laughs> and your maiden name is? Focus. Good Greek name. Um, so no, I don't think you ever dream that you could get, you know, you could get here and, and be blessed with this platform. I do think the athlete in me, to be honest with you, has been the biggest driver of it, Jim. I think just that work ethic. Look, my parents, you know, my dad was a judge. My mom was a, was a stay-at-home mom, but she's an incredibly brilliant woman. Um, and, and she was fierce about raising strong daughters. You know, always have your own savings account. Always have your own money. You're going to college. You know, I watched how hard my dad worked. I watched how hard everybody in my family worked. And then that athlete in me, like I said, I was never the best player on the field um, in terms of my skill set, but my tenacity is what set me apart. Nobody ever got by me. I played every minute of every game at Michigan State for four years. Um, you know, I played with broken collarbones. I played with concussions. I played with a knee on the side of my leg. You couldn't drag me off the field. Um, and that's how I've been in my career. And I think that it's about followership and surrounding yourself with amazing people. And, you know, of all the awards that I've won, I think the one I was the most proud of is when our team made the Ad Age top marketer list this past year, because it wrecked, first of all, it was such an amazing honor to be, you know, in that top 10 list, especially for a financial services company. And I just love that it recognized what the whole team had done together. And um, it inspires us. It drives us. And um, it's fun. You know, I'm still having a blast. People will always say to me, how come you don't do something different than Ally? I'm like, it's family. You, you know, you probably couldn't drag me out of here. They're going to have to kick me out of here. <laughs> 
I, I doubt they're going to do that. Listen, uh, when you were at Michigan State and playing every minute of every match with all these bumps and bruises, you were also studying advertising, which is an interesting choice for a young woman 30 years ago. Your daughter is going into advertising. So tell us why 30 years ago you wanted to study advertising and enter that field, which was a really difficult field back then for women and, by the way, still is. But what what was it about that field that enticed you? I've wanted to be in advertising ever since I was a little kid. I've always been fascinated by brands. Um, and I've been fascinated by the science of what makes us fall in love with one brand over another, particularly when they're parity from a product standpoint. And what is the magic of enduring brands? And, you know, so for instance, I'm a huge Porsche person. I love, I've always loved Porsches ever since I was a little kid. And I love the purity of a Porsche. I love the purity of the design. I love how they always remain true to the soul of what a Porsche is about. I love the fact that they're a brand that actually does very little marketing, but still sells every car they make. And the fact that they've always resisted the temptation to become a hundred thousand, you know, volume units a year and stay true to that 35 to 40,000 units a year. Um, and that's always just excited me. And I wanted to do that. When I graduated, I wanted to work on a big brand. I, I only applied to one place and it was Cambly Weld. I wanted to work on a big automotive brand. I was dying to work on the Chevy brand. Thankfully, I got a job there. And, you know, your reference in terms of difficulty as a woman, I've been in two categories now that are very hard for women, financial services and automotive. And um, again, I think it was just that tenacity that helped me persevere a lot of what have been some of the bumps in the road. But that's been my love. That was my fascination. And that's why I chose advertising. And I'm still really involved at Michigan State in the communication arts and sciences school and and try and really cultivating that next generation of um, of marketers. I work a lot with Jenny Rooney and the folks at Forbes. We do the college, uh, you know, speaking, and that's been a big passion of mine with Jenny. So um, I love it. And you referenced teaching, which is funny. I'd, I'd love to do that when I retire. That would be my dream. What's your advice to your daughter entering advertising? Um, be true to yourself. I think this is a business where the sharp edges can get sawed off. If you're, if you're not careful. Um, and I, my advice to her is the same as my advice to all my kids. You come into this life with your integrity. It's your choice, whether or not you want to leave with it. And, um, this is a business where it's really easy to compromise your values. It's really com easy to compromise your point of view. And, um, I, I tell her never to do that. And, um, you know, I tell all the kids that I tell everybody that works for me, the same thing. You've got to find a place that aligns with your values you have to have a voice, you have to use it, and you have to behave with integrity. It's too easy to make choices not to. And um, that will be the one thing that I'll probably hold my head the highest when I when I finally do retire is, I think if you talk to anybody that's worked with me, they'll tell you that I've, I've never compromised my values, I've never compromised what I believe in, and I've never been afraid to use my voice. Talked about your mom and dad a bit ago, and you talked about what you learned from your mom in terms of the tenacity and drive and achievement focus education. Your dad has an in interesting career choice as a judge. What did you learn from your father, who is in this most unusual career path? 
Yeah. I have a brother, by the way, who who is an ex-federal judge. Oh, really? And he, yeah, so it's it's a really, really interesting career on so many levels. What did you learn from your dad? I, I learned about fairness from my dad. Um, and and that and I learned about um honesty, and he was a big influence in me on this integrity point as well. Um, I loved going and watching him on the bench. And what I was always most proud of is that he treated everybody with extreme respect and fairness, whether it was somebody that was accused of murder or rape, all the way down to somebody that had a petty crime like a shoplifting to somebody that was standing in front of him for a speeding ticket. And you knew all those people were equally terrified and equally scared and that the decision that he was going to make was going to have a significant impact on their lives. And I realized that at a very young age, I could, I watched and observed the people that were standing in front of him and you'd see him shaking. You know, if you've ever been in court for any reason, it's a terrifying feeling and it's a terrifying experience. He was kind, he was respectful, um, he was fair, and he explained his actions. He explained the decision he made and he he made decisions to try and make sure that either he was doing the right thing for society or he was doing the right thing for that person. And that's something that I learned from him and have always carried forward. And I've just been, you know, blown away by how smart he is, how much he knows. He's 83 years old now and he's still sharp as a tack. I mean, you can have any debate on any subject with him and there's nothing that he, he, can't, um, he can't lean in on hard. He sounds wonderful. My father was a small town country attorney and did so much for so many people. And he worked, he passed away at 86 and he worked right up until then. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, know, we got, a lot, we got a lot in common, Jim. We do. We have to <laughs> we'll compare notes after we're off the mic. Hey, I want to move into sort of a, a lightning round. It will be so good with you. And just a lot of fast questions about interesting things about you and life and business and other things. And the first one is an easy one. Describe your perfect day for us. Perfect day would get up, go for a run, um, and then be on the boat on the lake and, uh, you know, either be on the jet skis or be on the boat, listen to some good, mu good music, have a fun day in the sun. I love being in the sun and then probably end it with a nice long drive in my 911. Oh, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> my, my perfect day would be very similar. We can talk about that later. What one thing did soccer teach you that has been helpful as a CMO? Teamwork. Without a doubt, you know, you're part of something bigger. It's not about you. I, I never liked individual sports. I ran track. I hated it um, because it was just all about your individual performance. Loved soccer because it was all about how everybody came together and all the parts working successfully. And, and that is something that I think we all carry into any job that we have. My dad so wanted me to play golf. It was one of his passions. I, he dragged me out there. I hated it. I couldn't do it. I wanted to get back to playing with the team. Yeah. It's just something about being surrounded. They're just relationships that I still have today. And we've been to battle together and we still laugh. I talked about that first game against Wisconsin. And I won't give you all the gory details about how nervous we were before the game, as you can imagine. And we still laugh to this day about, you know, hiding behind the uh, behind the clubhouse there and getting sick to our stomachs. And and we were all in it together. And I love that. And, and that's something that I love about my team today. It's just this feeling of togetherness that's family. That's what I miss so much in this pandemic. I miss seeing my team. What are you reading now, Andrea? 
Um, you know, you'd be, it, you'll, you'll laugh to know, Jim, that I'm not a huge reader. Um, but I, and I think that it's just because we're all so busy, but I'm reading uh, a book right now about white fragility and why it's so difficult for, for, um, white people to talk about social injustice and why it's so hard to talk about racial issues. And I'm learning a lot. My daughter read it first and she handed it over to me. Um, and I'm reading that now. And my, my daughter, um, we're living with her right now out in San Diego and she's ordered about 20 books for better perspective about what's going on now. And I'm, I'm in the middle of how to be an anti-racist by Ibram Kendi. And, uh, it's just really, really, I thought I was, pretty with it. It was just, it's, it's very, very, very mind opening. Yeah, it is. It's extremely, it's, it's, it's extremely enlightening. And this book on white fragility is extremely enlightening and just empower, you know, white privilege and, and again, things that you don't think that you think or do and how unconscious bias come creeps into all of our minds. And, and it's been, um, it's been pretty eye opening. What's the best ad campaign you worked on at Campbell Ewald? In your 19 years? American Revolution, without a doubt. We launched 20 new products in 40 months. We restored Cam uh, Chevrolet to sales leadership for the first time in 27 years with that campaign. I was incredibly proud of it. The look of it, the feel of it, the boldness of it, the way that we rolled it out. And, um, you know, that was, that was my most exciting time there. Best part of living in Detroit? Um, I love the grit of the city, the work ethic of this city, and uh, we got a lot of good food. Coney Islands, we've got great pizza. It's a good place to live. So I, I love living here. I really do. My son and his new wife just moved there. They live in Corktown. I just had my first Detroit pizza with them as we helped them move in. Wow. Yeah. Where has that been all my life? Right. I know. It's awesome. And it's crazy because no, nobody's got Coney Islands in the country. So, you know, everybody that moves out of Michigan, like when my parents come home from Florida, first thing they do literally on the way home from the airport, we have to stop and get a Coney dog. And, uh, you know, so it's a great place to live. It's Michigan's a wonderful place to raise a family. It was a wonderful place to grow up. And we're blessed that we have so much water here that we can live on. There's nothing like being on the water. Last question, I promise. Who would you like to listen to in the CMO podcast? Who would be helpful for you? Oh, wow. That is a good question. Um, you know, I, I'm blessed, I think, because I get to interact with a lot of CMOs um, and reach out to people that are friends and and learn from them, whether it's, um, you know, uh, people in, in my category or outside of my category. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, one of the folks that I've never had the opportunity to um, to actually meet that I love is Fernando. Um, you know, I know he's probably been on the podcast, but I, I, he's a great person to learn from. I think he's done an amazing job, as I mentioned at, at Burger King, without a doubt. Um, you know, I'm, I uh, am a big fan of Tor, Myrena at, at Apple. Um, and I think that, um, you know, Tor is another great one. I, I learned a lot from him when I worked with him at Gray. I'd love to hear updates from him. Um, and, um, you know, I just think any brand right now, it's a hard time for CMOs. It really is. We are in hand to hand combat almost every single day, trying to keep your brand safe. And as we go into an election, it's going to get even dicier. And so, um, I think that, you know, just about anybody that's dealing with that right now is, uh, is good to hear from. I'll leave you with the last word. Anything you want to ask me, Andrea? And after that, we'll sign off. And if nothing, that's cool. 
Well, all right. So here's, here's one for you. Um, what was your favorite interview and why? And you don't have to say this one, Jim, don't worry. This is up there. <laughs> no, I love this one. This has been a lesson in leadership and teamwork and customer centricity. So I think it's just uh, remarkable. Uh, this is a tough one. I love all of these for different reasons. I just, I, we just dropped Jerry DeVard's interview, who I've known. We started our career in the same year. Uh, that one was just so full of fundamental lessons and humanity and poignancy, especially in these times to be talking with her. And I love that one. Uh, Fernando's was amazing. There's just no one who is able to pull creativity out of an organization like him. So I love that one as well. Um, it's just all been wonderful. I mean, Greg Lyons at Pepsi, who lost his wife and talked about her final words to him. Wow. And so uh, this is a joy doing this, these interviews. I feel inspired and, and re-energized after each one. And this is, this is one of them. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, it's been, so thank you for doing this. It's been fun for me too. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. That was my conversation with Andrea Brimmer. I learned that we both love ribs, sports, conies, and Detroit pizza. So we like a lot of food together. This podcast was remarkable on so many levels. I think it's one of the best we have recorded for lessons in extreme customer centricity and teamwork. The way Andrea talked about rebranding Ally, beginning the brand with a sense of purpose, carrying the purpose forward to this day, doing the right things for her employees and her customers and her team. This was one textbook podcast about building a brand and operating with purpose. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.